Good morning, Four Corners. You know, uh, God has given us a great gift in His Word, a great treasure. We were reminded of that yesterday as uh, we were here at our men's retreat, the, the topic of our fall day retreat, and the topic was knowing the Word or studying the Scriptures. <clears throat> and just a, uh, an infusion of reminders of how precious God's Word is to us, how, how much of a gift it is. Uh, that we get to come together and sing it and pray it and preach it and hear it preached and, and, and to just center ourselves on God's revelation. For today, we're going to go to Exodus 26. So if you would go there with me, Exodus 26, and we're going to take on the whole chapter. I debated this, but I think it's probably the best course forward. I, I'm, I may change my mind as I'm going through this, and you may disagree with me as I begin to go through it, uh, but I think... Uh, we can take all of this on as one whole, Exodus 26, 1 to 37. For a few weeks now, we have been studying the tabernacle, which will pretty much take us through to the end of Exodus. We'll have the, the golden calf incident, which, as I've said before, is meant to be understood in the backdrop of this tabernacle a larger section on the tabernacle, this larger section on the worship, the right worship of the true God. What happens in the golden calf incident is wrong worship. For some, probably seeing it as Yahweh, that seems to be, uh, it seems to, to be at least a, a depiction that they have come up with on their own of Yahweh. Uh, maybe for others, not so much the case. But what we get as we come to the tabernacle is true worship of the true God, according to his true revelation. And so it will take us through to the end when the glory of the Lord, uh, as we have over there on our poster, and I try, we try to put up, anytime we go through a book, we try to put up posters uh, just of some key passages, and that's always hard for me to pick two. Uh, but I think the end, Exodus 40, where we get the glory of the Lord filling the tabernacle, that's really where we are headed. So always keep that in view as we're going through all of this. As we've seen, this is a topic, the topic of the tabernacle, that points us back to Eden, up to heaven, and forward to Christ. So there is absolutely nothing boring about the tabernacle. Now, anytime we read an instruction manual... That is not particularly exciting. Maybe there are some of you who like that sort of thing. Uh, but in general, that's not particularly exciting. But let me just say this. There's absolutely nothing boring about the tabernacle we, when we consider its significance. It points us back to Eden, up to heaven, and forward to Christ. The greatest themes of the Bible are present in the tabernacle. It is a topic that even brings us to Christmas. And so I hope, as we are a few months away from Christmas, that this will even uh, infuse some, some greater significance and meaning to how you celebrate Christmas this year. And So why do I say that the tabernacle brings us to Christmas? Well, what are we celebrating at Christmas? We are celebrating the incarnation of the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Word, the eternal Son who becomes flesh. And we read this in John chapter 1, verse 14. This is the great Christmas passage. And the Word became flesh and dwelt or 
tabernacled or pitched his tent among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Any glory that is to be seen in the tabernacle is fully fulfilled and utterly eclipsed by the glory of this Son who is full of grace and truth. The fullness of the Godhead bodily. The image of the Father. So as we go through the tabernacle, we really are anticipating Christmas. We're anticipating the coming of Christ into the world. God's presence with us. Emmanuel, God with us, which is realized in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. God and man united in one person. So far, we have been given pieces of furniture as we've been going through this tabernacle section. Pieces of furniture. The Ark of the Covenant which we looked at a couple of weeks ago, the table for the bread of the presence and the golden lampstand. Those are the three pieces of furniture that we've worked through. Last week, we did the table and the lampstand. The week before that, we did the Ark of the Covenant. But at this point, we don't yet have a place to put them in. We just have some pieces of furniture. We've talked about God's dwelling place And we've seen the furniture that is meant to depict it as God's dwelling place. But we don't have a place yet. We haven't been given that quite yet. In a sense, we haven't started talking about the tabernacle yet. And today we come to the tabernacle tent itself in chapter 26. The actual place in which the furniture will sit. And so when we get to the end of our passage today, we're going to see that uh, those three pieces of furniture we've already looked at are then situated and identified with the place of the tent. This is the portable place where God will meet with his people. Wherever they go, God will be there in this portable tent. Remember the words of Jacob that he spoke over Joseph's sons at the end of Genesis. In Genesis 48, verse 15. I say remember uh, because we've, we went through this as a church. Uh, years ago, we went through the book of Genesis. And it's still very much on my mind as I'm going through Exodus. And it should be on all of our minds as we see, really, that the end of Genesis just moves right into the beginning of Exodus. You, you could tear down these dividing walls, really, and just see fluidity between Genesis and Exodus. We're still in that story. And when we go to the end of Genesis in chapter 48, verse 15, we hear Jacob referring to the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. Jacob recognized that throughout his life, as he tells Pharaoh, his very difficult life, his hard life, That the Lord had been his shepherd all along. God had been present with him. God had never left Jacob. Even in those dark days of thinking that Joseph was dead. (coughs) Remember that? Even when he had to send his son Benjamin off to Egypt. Uh, Imagine, here is a man who has uh, the son, and of course we should not have favorites. We all know that as parents. Uh, But Jacob had a favorite son, and his favorite son was Joseph, the oldest son of his wife Rachel, his favorite wife. And that's a different discussion. 
Uh, but he had four wives, and he had all of these sons, 12 sons, and his favorite was Joseph. And we know how the other brothers take Joseph. They throw him into a pit. They sell him into slavery. He goes off into Egypt. God is working his great purposes uh, of saving his people, rescuing his people. But the sons go back to Jacob, and they tell him that Joseph has been killed by a wild animal. They, they, they didn't see it themselves, as they say to their father, but they bring him uh, the coat of many colors that he had given his favorite son, ripped up and dipped in blood. And so for all the years that God is working his purposes in Egypt, in the life of Joseph, Jacob believes that his son has perished. And then, without telling the whole story, here it is my favorite story in the Bible, but without retelling the whole story, at some point he has to send his other son of Rachel, uh, Benjamin, with the brothers back to Egypt to get food. And so there he is, waving goodbye to Benjamin, who he was so reluctant to send before. Simeon is being held, Benjamin is now leaving, and Joseph has died as far as Jacob is concerned. But God had never left Jacob. You know, I remember going through that, talking with some people, and just thinking about the fact that uh, often our lives feel like Jacob in Canaan without Joseph. And what I mean by that is, uh, oftentimes we're going through life and God is working something out and we don't see the whole picture. We don't see any of the picture. All we feel is the loss in the moment. But God is present and God is working and nothing teaches us that better than the story of Joseph. God had never left Jacob, even in those dark days. God was with him. And God had been with his people all along. When we pick up at the beginning of Exodus, the people, uh, they, they slide into slavery and God is with them. How do we know God is with them? Because they're multiplying and multiplying and multiplying. God is present in the darkness. God is present in the hard Days, he had always been with his people. But now, with the tabernacle, he would make his presence known. He would locate himself. The God of the universe, the God who is infinite and eternal, immutable, incomprehensible, the God who is omnipresent, would locate himself. He would tie his shepherding work to a place a place that people could see. They could walk out of their tent. Oh, there it is. The Lord is with us. He would tie his presence, his shepherding work to a place, a holy place, a dwelling place. And so the title for the sermon this morning is God's Dwelling Place. As we now finally come to the tabernacle itself, we come to God's dwelling place. So if you would stand with me as we read God's word together. I won't say who, but uh, one of the ladies told me uh, a while ago when we were going through Genesis, the, the longest chapter in Genesis is Genesis 24 when Abraham sends his servant. 
And uh, I remember when we, we stood up and we read that long passage, 60-some verses, I believe. And uh, the lady I talked to, she was laughingly telling me how she was pregnant during the time. And it was like a marathon standing up to read uh, Genesis 24. Well, this may feel like a marathon. Uh, it's not quite as long. But here we go. Verses, by the way, feel free to sit down if you, if you uh, can't stand. I mean, don't. You don't have to tough it out uh, so intensely. Uh, we, we do stand corporately, so I hope everybody's not going to sit down now. Uh, we do stand corporately in honor of God's word, but if you, if you have trouble standing, please feel free uh, to sit down. So Exodus 26, verses 1 to 37. This is the word of God. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle... With ten curtains of fine twined linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns, you shall make them with cherubim skillfully worked into them. The length of each curtain shall be 28 cubits and the breadth of each curtain four cubits. All the curtains shall be the same size. Five curtains shall be coupled to one another and the other five curtains shall be coupled to one another. And you shall make loops of blue on the edge of the outermost curtain in the first set. Likewise, you shall make loops on the edge of the outermost curtain in the second set. Fifty loops you shall make on the one curtain. And fifty loops you shall make on the edge of the curtain that is in the second set. The loops shall be opposite one another. And you shall make fifty clasps of gold. And couple the curtains one to the other with the clasps. So that the tabernacle may be a single whole. You shall also make curtains of goat's hair for a tent over the tabernacle. Eleven curtains shall you make. The length of each curtain shall be thirty cubits, and the breadth of each curtain four cubits. The eleven curtains shall be the same size. You shall couple five curtains by themselves and six, six curtains by themselves. And the sixth curtain you shall double over it, the front of the tent, over at the front of the tent. You shall make 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that is outermost in one set and 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that is outermost in the second set. You shall make 50 clasps of bronze and put the clasps into the loops and couple the tent together that it may be a single whole. And the part that remains of the curtains of the tent, the half curtain that remains, shall hang over the back of the tabernacle. And the extra that remains in the length of the curtains the cubit on the one side and the cubit on the other side shall hang over the sides of the tabernacle on this side and shall make four and that side to cover it. Sorry, on this side and that side to cover it. Verse 14, and you shall make for the tent a covering of tanned ram skins and a covering of goat skins on top. Verse 15, you shall make upright frames for the tabernacle of acacia wood. Ten cubits shall be the length of a frame and a cubit and a half the breadth of each frame. There shall be two tenons or projections in each frame for fitting together. So shall you do for all the frames of the tabernacle. You shall make the frames for the tabernacle, 20 frames for the south side, and 40 bases of silver you shall make under the 20 frames. Two bases under one frame for its two tenons, and two bases under the next frame for its two tenons. And for the second side of the tabernacle, on the north side, 20 frames, and there are 40 bases of silver, two bases under one frame and two bases under the next frame. And for the rear of the tabernacle, westward, you shall make six frames, and you shall make two frames for corners of the tabernacle in the rear. 
They shall be separate beneath, but joined at the top at the first ring. Thus shall it be with both of them. They shall form the two corners, and there shall be eight frames with their bases of silver. Sixteen bases, two bases under one frame, and two bases under another frame. You shall make bars of acacia wood, five for the frames of the one side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the frames of the other side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the frames of the side of the tabernacle at the rear westward. The middle bar, halfway up the frames, shall run from end to end. You shall overlay the frames with gold, and shall make their rings of gold for holders for the bars, and you shall overlay the bars with gold. Then you shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan for it that you were shown on the mountain. And you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it, and you shall hang it on four pillars of acacia of acacia overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold on four bases of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy. You shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the most holy place, and you shall set the table outside the veil and the lampstand on the south side of the tabernacle opposite the table. And you shall put the table on the north side. You shall make a screen for the entrance of the tent of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen embroidered with needlework. And you shall make for the screen five pillars of acacia and overlay them with gold. Their hooks shall be of gold and you shall cast five bases of bronze for them. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's pray and ask for the Lord to illuminate his word, uh, that he would give us uh, insight into his glory, that a passage like this would help us to see some of those great, wondrous, significant things that we've talked about at the beginning. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful to be here. We're so thankful to be in your word together as a church, and we ask for your spirit's help. We pray, Father, that you would make your word clear to us, that the things that need to be highlighted and said would be said And Lord, that you would be glorified. We pray that uh, your name would be made much of in this place. God, we pray that you would edify us, help us, strengthen us, encourage us for the work that lies ahead for this week. As we think about the fact, Lord, that you have prepared good works from before the foundation of the world for us to do this very day and this very week. So Lord, we pray that Our time together feeding on your word this morning would strengthen us for those works. Works that will bring you much glory. Works that will help us to grow in the likeness of Jesus. And works that will help us, Lord, to anticipate more when we will be with you forever. God, we're thankful for this time and we pray that your spirit would help us in all of it. In Jesus' name, amen. So this description of the tabernacle comes in three main parts. And uh, maybe you picked up on this while we were going. Maybe you fell asleep standing up. I don't know. But hopefully you did not. And you were kind of tracking with the major sections of this portion. Uh, But let me give you the three parts. These are the three parts that we're going to look at as we go through this uh, rich construction uh, description of the tabernacle. So three parts. First, the coverings. 
and that's going to take us from verses 1 to 14. Second, the structure, and that's going to take us from verses 15 to 30. And then finally, the dividers, verses 31 to 37. So the coverings, the structure, and the dividers, and hopefully that will get uh, the big picture in view. So first, we're going to look at the coverings, and I want to do something here as we look back at the passages. What I want you to do, and however you can focus best, so maybe you need to close your eyes and listen, or maybe you need to stare at the wall or stare at the floor, but I want to read back over verses 1 to 14, and I want you to build this thing in your mind, or at least build the portions that are, are present here. So I'm going to read it through, verses 1 to 14, we're going to... We're going to see a picture in a little bit, so uh, be encouraged. But try to picture it first in your own mind. I'll try to give you a sense for it, and then a picture will come up so that you can sort of on those three layers, uh, you can hopefully get a sense for what's in view here. So here we go, verses 1 to 14 again. Try to build this in your mind. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twined linen, and blue and purple and scarlet yarns. You shall make them with cherubim skillfully worked into them. The length of each curtain shall be 28 cubits. Remember, a cubit is 18 inches, the the length from the elbow to the tip of the middle finger. And the breadth of each curtain, four cubits. (coughs) All the curtains shall be the same size. Five curtains shall be coupled to one another, And the other five curtains shall be coupled to one another. So you got ten pieces, then you have five, and you have five, two sets of five. And you shall make loops of blue on the edge of the outermost curtain in the first set. Likewise, you shall make loops on the edge of the outermost curtain in the second set. Fifty loops you shall make on the one curtain, and fifty loops you shall make on the edge of the curtain that is in the second set. The loops shall be opposite one another. By the way, let me just pause for a second. This is a lot like the description of Noah's Ark. And notice here how much detail the Lord gives. There's a lot of clarity here. And I think that's just, just as a side note, that really does remind us of the clarity of God's word. This is like a little picture of how clear God's word is. God tells us in his word how we are to be built up in the Christian life. And he tells us clearly just as he clearly tells the people how they are to build the tabernacle. So going on, and you shall make 50 clasps of gold and couple the curtains one to the other with the clasps so that the tabernacle may be a single whole. So join together, clasp together. You shall also make curtains of goat's hair for a tent over the tabernacle. So now we're talking about something different, a tent. Eleven curtains shall you make. The length of each curtain shall be thirty cubits, and the breadth of each curtain four cubits. The eleven curtains shall be the same size. You shall couple five curtains by themselves, and six curtains by themselves, and the sixth curtain you shall double at the front of the tent. You shall make fifty loops on the edge of the curtain that is outermost in one set, And 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that is outermost in the second set. So here you're seeing a repetition with this particular curtain. You shall make 50 clasps of bronze and put the clasps into the loops. And couple the tent together that it may be a single whole. And the part that remains of the curtains of the tent, the half curtains that remain, 
the half curtain that remains, shall hang over the back of the tabernacle. And the extra that remains in the length of the curtains, the cubit on the one side and the cubit on the other side, shall hang over the sides of the tabernacle, on this side and that side to cover it. And you shall make for the tent a covering of tanned ram skins and a covering of goat skins on top. So maybe this is the sort of passage that you would tend to skip over or skim through in your personal Bible reading. You have to read your three chapters for the day and you realize that time is rushed and you happily think to yourself, well, really, I only have to read two chapters because chapter 26 is just a description of all these loops and boards and, uh, or, or frames and everything else. And so maybe that is the way you've treated this passage in the past. And there are lots of little construction details here to contend with mentally. So it is, it's challenging to read this, much like as we've talked about before. It's challenging to read through genealogies and, and passages like that, lists. But what I want to do this morning is, or for this section is to take a step back and give you a sense for the whole. I want to give you a sense for the big picture and then make some observations regarding the details. And in doing that, hopefully it will allow us to visualize what's going on while also highlighting some of the significant aspects of the description. So there are some, some docking points that we need to hit. There are some, some elements of this. As is true of genealogies, there are some points here that we really need to focus in on that are full of significance. Get the whole thing in view and then focus on aspects of it that are particularly significant. The recurring idea here is curtain. Now, you say it over and over and over again when you're reading through this. Curtain. We see it everywhere. And that's the reason I have entitled this point, the coverings. This, this is what goes over the structure. We are getting a description of the coverings that will hang over the wooden structure, which comes in verse 15 and runs to verse 30. The framing that we're going to look at in a moment. And what we're told is that there are four layers of covering. So get that in your mind as you're reading through this. You might miss that. But there are four layers of coverings over the tabernacle. So let me go through these. First, there is a linen curtain for the innermost layer. And this is the tabernacle proper. Uh, understood with, it, with the structure there in place. This is the tabernacle proper, the linen curtain. Second, on top of that, there is a curtain of goat's hair that functions as a tent over the tabernacle. So you'll notice that when you get to the goat's hair, it no longer says tabernacle. It says a tent over the tabernacle. So you've got the linen curtain, and then over that you have the goat's hair curtain which functions as a tent over the inner curtain. And this goes all the way down to the ground on the sides, whereas the linen curtain stops one cubit above the ground. And so the linen curtain that's underneath doesn't go all the way to the ground, but this does, and hence the idea of a tent. It goes all the way down to the ground. Third, over the goat's hair curtain, 
there is a covering of tanned ram's skins. That's the exterior, the beginning of the exterior. Think of it as two interior uh, curtains and then two exterior coverings. This is the first exterior covering the tanned ram's ram's skins. And then fourth and finally, you have a final layer or a final covering of what may be porpoise skin. So here you read in the ESV that it is goat skins, but uh, there's a debate over what exactly that means. Dolphin skins, porpoise skins uh, is, is something that sea cows, uh, these are some of the various translations uh, that get used. But this would have undoubtedly been used to protect uh, the, the tabernacle from the weather. So you think about that linen, the water's just going to come pouring right through that and, and, and on, all the way up. But when you get to this final layer, you have total protection from the weather. So there are the four layers. Hopefully that gets it more in sight for you. The innermost layer consists of two sets of five joined curtains that are held together with 50 clasps of gold. So uh, imagine these strips that are sewn together, so you have strips that are brought together into sets of five. You have two sets of five strips, ten strips total, two sets of five, and those two sets of five are then joined together with clasps of gold. The result is one very large curtain that covers the roof, the two sides, and the rear of a rectangular structure measuring 45 feet long, 15 feet wide, and 15 feet high. Okay, so now I'll give you the picture. Uh, you'll see it up there on the screen. So what they've done here, and, and this, is, this is a reconstruction. You'll find different reconstructions. I'm using this because it, it comes from a credible source. It's from the ESV Study Bible. And so if you have an ESV Study Bible, this is the picture you'll see. Uh, but what you'll notice are those four layers. You can see that uh, each of those layers there going all the way down to the linen layer that you can see from the inside. And you see the length of the structure, how wide it is, how long it is, and how tall it is. The height matching the width, and then 45 feet in length. This inner layer that we have, is then covered with the tent layer of goat's hair, which goes all the way to the ground, and that is then covered with these two layers of skins. So linen, goat's hair, and then two layers of skins. Okay, so that's the structure. That's what's going on. I mean, that's the, not the structure. Those are the coverings. Those are the curtains. So now what I want to do is draw your attention to some of the details. And you might be thinking, we've already done enough details. Uh, but... I want you to see some of the specific characteristics here and, and some of the significance that we can draw out of them. So first, and by the way, you know, you, you might say, well, there's, there's, there's also this and there's also that. And there's a lot of discussion over how significant this piece is and that piece. What I want to do is draw attention to those things that are most pronounced, that it's clear from the author that these things are being highlighted. So first is the inner fabric. Verse 1. It is made of fine twined linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns. So just want to look at the fabric of that inner layer. And what we're being, what, what's, what's being pointed to or highlighted there is the royalty of the Lord. Remember that this is meant to be the house of the king. 
God is the cosmic ruler. He's the king of the universe. And he, he, is, he has as his throne room the Holy of Holies. And, and commentators debate over whether that's meant to be a throne or a footstool for his throne. As you think about heaven meeting earth and so forth. But what I want you to see here is that this fine twined linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns are pointing to the royalty of the Lord. The people are reminded this is the house of the king. This is the house of the king. And of course that explodes with meaning for us as we consider the fact that all of scripture is about the glory of this king. It is about the majesty of this king. And all Human beings are meant to be servants of this king. All of the universe, all of earth is constructed in this way. This is foundational for a Christian worldview. It's foundational for the view of the world that Israel was to have. And it is embedded in the construction of the tabernacle. The sovereign ruler of all of the universe and the sovereign ruler of each and every one of our lives. Let me just say this. It's easy to call God king when it does not meet our specific lives and our specific pleasures and our specific comforts and the things in life that we want. It is easy to call God king in church. Is it, it is easy to call God king when we are talking about angels and redemptive history when we're talking about God's miracles. It's easy to see God as king in a distant way, but it is much more difficult to see God as king and Lord when it hurts. But that's when we show ourselves to be true worshipers of the king, is when it hurts. It's like when we tell our kids, obedience is easy when I tell you to do something that you already want to do. Or obedience is easy when it's general in nature, but obedience is real. It's concrete. It's substantive. It's firm when it hurts. When it's the opposite of what you want to do. When, when everything in you wants to go down this road, but mom and dad say, no, go down this road. That is when we see the truth of whether or not we see the Lord our God as king. So we see his royalty. Secondly, take a look at the embroidery, verse 1. With cherubim skillfully worked into them, it says. So on this royal linen, we have these pictures of cherubim, of these angels, these incredible angelic beings that we find all throughout the Bible uh, who, who are around the throne room of God, worshiping him with wings covering their faces before the holy God. These are beings, as I said before, that would be utterly terrified of if we saw one of them. If we saw the back of one cherub, we would fall out. These incredible beings, mere creatures, mere creatures of this glorious king. 
And these cherubim remind us, aside from just reinforcing the fact of God's glory and his majesty and his royalty, which we've already talked about, aside from that, they bring us back to Eden, as we've said before. They take us back to that point when God kicked man and woman, Adam and Eve, out of the garden and he put two cherubim at the entrance to the garden. What the Lord is saying, as I've said before, is that through the worship of the tabernacle, there is a way back to Eden. Through the blood of the sacrifice, there is a way back behind the fall. There's a way that the fall can be undone, that the enemy can be conquered and defeated, that sin and death can be no more. But it requires moving into the place where the blood is sprinkled. It also brings us to heaven as we, we consider these angels day and night circling around the throne of God where God locates himself cosmically before the angels. It baffles our minds. We, we don't understand uh, all that's going on there for sure. But where God locates himself in heaven, these angelic beings, myriads of these angelic beings are around the throne of God worshiping him day and night. What about the clasps? Let me bring you to the clasps. The 50 clasps of gold, verse 6, versus the 50 clasps of bronze, verse 11. Interesting. We have these clasps of gold on that inner linen curtain, which is seen from the inside. And then on the next layer, we have clasps of bronze. Maybe you just read right over that, but it's significant. It is what one scholar, T. Desmond Alexander, calls graded holiness. Here we are, we are seeing uh, holiness moving out from the, the place where God meets with his people there, where God sees the blood on the mercy seat. We're seeing movement out from the core. And as we move out from the core, the core of God's dwelling place, we are seeing kind of a decrease in holiness as we just continue out all the way to the people. And, of course, we will talk about that at the end as we think about the veil. But we see graded holiness. Once again, that emphasizes God's majesty, but specifically his holiness. He is the holy king. The holy king. Then, let me draw your attention to the different coverings. Now, this is really interesting, and you could probably go into all sorts of directions here, but you have the linen. Then on top of that, you have the goat's hair, then on top of that, you have the skins. And, and as I was thinking about this, this is just pure out of Lonnie's brain, so take it or leave it. But as I was thinking about it, it's just fascinating to me how, it, in a sense, it kind of mirrors Eden. It mirrors Genesis 1 to 3. You start with plants, and then in, in chapter 2, you get specific references to, to Adam naming the animals. You have there the hair. And then you have death flashing with the skins. You have the, the plant-based curtain, and then the hair-based curtain, and then you have two skin coverings, this walking back to paradise. It also shows us that death is being pushed out 
Death is being pushed out to the exterior. It's not on the inside. There aren't skins on the inside. It's a linen curtain. The skins are on the outside. It's being pushed away. It's also a reminder, as I said before, of the coverings of skin that God made for his people. Uh, which points us to the covering that Christ will give us in his blood uh, through his flesh. Uh, we recognize that God, when Adam and Eve sinned, they had covered themselves with fig leaves. And God covers them with animal skins, pointing to the need for sacrifice, pointing to the penalty of sin, which is death. Genesis 3.21, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. So first we have the coverings. Now we, we're going to move on to the structure. And we'll come, we'll come back to that. We're going to move on to the structure, verses 15 to 30. And I want you to do the same thing you did before. Just close your eyes or focus and try to build this in your mind. Verses 15 to 30, you shall make upright frames for the tabernacle of acacia wood. Ten cubits shall be the length of a frame, and a cubit and a half the breadth of each frame. There shall be two tenons in each frame for fitting together. So shall you do for all the frames of the tabernacle. You shall make the frames for the tabernacle, 20 frames for the south side, and 40 bases of silver you shall make under the 20 frames. Two bases under one frame for its two tenons, and two bases under the next frame for its two tenons or projections. And for the second side of the tabernacle, on the north side, 20 frames. And there are 40 bases of silver, two bases under one frame, and two bases under the next frame. And for the rear of the tabernacle, westward, you shall make six frames. And you shall make two frames for corners of the tabernacle in the rear. They shall be separate beneath, but joined at the top, at the first ring. Thus shall it be with both of them. They shall form the two corners... And there shall be eight frames with, eight, with their bases of silver, 16 bases, two bases under one frame, and two bases under another frame. You shall make bars of acacia wood, five for the frames of the one side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the frames of the other side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the frames of the side of the tabernacle at the rear westward. The middle bar halfway up the frames shall run from end to end. You shall overlay the frames with gold, and shall make their rings of gold for holders for the bars. And you shall overlay the bars with gold. Then you shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan for it that you were shown on the mountain. Here we get the hard structure of the tabernacle. This is what will hold up the curtains and coverings that we just read about. So if you just have curtains and coverings, you don't have a tent, uh, at least this size. Uh, you need some sort of interior structure, and that's what we're getting here. Keep in mind that everything we're reading here is meant to be taken apart and transported. That would have been an incredible undertaking, but uh, many hands, as, as Daniel said yesterday when we finished our, uh, our, our men's retreat, many hands make light work. And so uh, we recognize that uh, the Lord had uh, tasked the Levites with taking this thing apart. They would take it apart and they would put it back together and they probably got really good at doing this. So what do we have? Once again, let's try to get this uh, general structure in view. We have frames, bases, and crossbars. Those are sort of the three elements, frames, bases, and crossbars. There are 20 frames 
per side, placed side by side, and each one measuring one and a half cubits wide. This gives us the length of the tabernacle, 30 cubits or 45 feet. So if you're wondering, uh, and I, I walked this out try to, to kind of visualize it in my head, but 45 feet is how long the tabernacle was. Frames are also placed in the rear, extending to the top of the structure. You can see the frames on the inside and the frames along the side. Along the north wall, the south wall, this, the north side, south side, and then the rear, uh, the end of it. Now, these are likely frames rather than boards, and scholars have debated this, how this should be translated. But they are likely frames, so they would have been open in the center, which would have allowed the inner curtain to be draped over them and still be seen from the inside. And so as you're reading this, you're thinking, okay, how did this actually work? Well, it seems as though uh, the inner curtain is draped over these frames, but because there are gaps in the frames, not gaps between the frames, but within the frames, you're able to see through to the curtain, seeing God's royalty, seeing God's holiness, seeing the return back to Eden. Each frame has two projections at the bottom, which allow them to be fitted into the silver bases. Two bases per frame, which provides the foundation. Crossbars are then placed along the length of the tabernacle to firm up the structure. One runs the entire length of each side and the width of the back, and the other four are half that size and coupled with another. And so what you end up with are three crossbars. One long crossbar and then four halves that together create a second and third crossbar. For some of you who do building for a living, you're like, yeah, I got it. And the rest of us <laughs> are uh, still trying to work this out. But you have these frames, these bases, and the crossbars. So now that we've got a pretty good idea of what's going on here, let's make a few observations, just as we did before regarding the coverings. Let's make some observations here about the structure. So first, the silver bases. Now notice these are touching the ground. They're removed. They're removed one step. And so we move from gold to silver here as these things are touching the ground. And yet they are still within the tabernacle structure, hence the silver. Let me give you one quote from Walter Kaiser who sees significance here with the silver basis. He writes this, Israel contributed 100 talents of silver for these bases. And he gets that from chapter 38. And they are described, that, that, that money or that, the, those talents are described as atonement money, which he gets from chapter 30. And then he goes on to say, thus the foundation of the tabernacle rested on a ransom or redemption just as the church has been bought with Christ's own blood. And that's interesting because it tells us that the whole superstructure is built on redemption. And, and that reminds us of, of the fact that all that we've read in Exodus is built on redemption. God tells his people in the law that every one of those commandments is built on redemption. Because at the very beginning of the law, we get that prelude, I am the Lord. I rescued you out of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. This is who I am to you. This is what I've done for you. That's the foundation. And then upon that we get the law. And the same is true here. The tabernacle, the worship structure, the sacrificial system, all of this built on the grace 
of God's redemption. I also want you to notice the direction of the tabernacle. Verse 22, And for the rear of the tabernacle westward, you shall make six frames. In case you're wondering, is this really, I mean, I don't think you can read this and wonder, is Eden in view? I think the cherubim make that perfectly clear, but also the direction of the tabernacle. Remember that the, the cherubim in Eden are placed at the east, and that's where the entrance is. And as you move west, if you were moving back west, if Adam and Eve would have turned around and somehow taken out the cherubim and gone back through, then they would have been moving westward. They would have been moving westward towards God's presence. And that's exactly what's going on here Westward movement from entrance to the Holy of Holies. I also want you to notice the plan. Verse 30. Then you shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan for it that you were shown on the mountain. Now this really is repetition because we've talked about this before, but it's constantly reiterated. And anytime anything is repeated, we should take note of it. Constantly throughout these descriptions, we are told, Moses was told, the Israelites would have been told, look, do this precisely as I am telling you to do it according to the pattern shown you, Moses, on the mountain. In other words, there is a deeper significance. There's cosmic significance. There's Christological significance that is being conveyed in the details and in the structure, and it must be carried out according to that pattern. Finally, we come to the dividers. This really is the climax of this passage. Verses 31 to 37. Look with me there. And you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. It shall be made with carabim skillfully worked into it. And you shall hang it on four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold. With hooks of gold on four bases of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps. And bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy. You shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the most holy place. And you shall set the table outside the veil and the lampstand on the south side of the tabernacle opposite the table. And you shall put the table on the north side. So now we're getting those pieces of furniture reintegrated. You shall make a screen for the entrance of the tent of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen embroidered with needlework. And you shall make for the screen five pillars of acacia and overlay them with gold. Their hooks shall be of gold and you shall cast five bases of bronze for them. Now that we have a covered structure, the emphasis moves to the rooms within that structure. And Sean, you can go ahead and put that back up just so that can be in view as we're talking through this. The emphasis moves to the rooms. There are two, only two. The most holy place, which contains the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat on top, and the holy place, which contains the table and lampstand. As one commentator put it, the first is the throne room. The second is where uh, the Lord has audiences with the priests, has an audience with the priests. You have the light. You have the bread there. But here's what I want to draw your attention to, the dividers. We only have the two rooms because we have the two dividers. 
these two rooms are separated. And the first room that you come to is separated from the outside, and that's then followed by another separation between the rooms. And it happens by means of two curtains. Let me talk about each of those curtains. The first curtain, here translated veil, is just like the inner curtain that we read about earlier. The same thing, as you can see from the inside, so you would be able to see the same thing on this veil. Blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen with carabim woven into it. It is hung on four wooden pillars overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold on four bases of silver. The second curtain is placed at the entrance to the tabernacle, here translated as a screen. So in the ESV, translated veil and then screen. And I want you to notice two differences. This is important. It goes along with what we've said already. Two differences between the veil and the screen. They are made of the same fabric. But there are no carabim on the screen. So you notice that in the picture. There are no carabim, same colors, same fabric, but no angelic beings embroidered on the screen, whereas they are on the veil. A second difference that we find here is that the bases for the pillars are made of bronze. When it comes to this exterior screen, the pillars that the screen will hang upon, the bases for those pillars are made of bronze. Once again, you are moving out from the holy place. You're moving out to the courtyard at this point, and you're moving, you can see them there, you're moving towards the bronze altar. All right. So let me tie this up. Let me tie this up here with one word that dominates the tabernacle. Now, Everything I've said up to this point, you would say, the tabernacle is good news. Uh, the tabernacle is gospel. Good news. That's what gospel means. You might be thinking. But the problem is that when you actually look at the tabernacle and you look at the details of the tabernacle, you realize that there is some bad news mixed in. And the bad news is separation. It's everywhere. Separation is everywhere. The coverings separate what's going on on the inside. The screen separates the first room. And then that room is then separated from the next room. Separation, separation, separation. The tabernacle is not gospel. The gospel comes through our Lord Jesus Christ, the true tabernacle, the fulfillment of the tabernacle. And we read this in several places. I want to give you a few passages here as we close. First, Hebrews 9, verses 6 to 7. Listen to this. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section. So you see, see the little guy out there in the front? Those priests are going in regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes. And listen to this. And he, but once a year, only one man and only one day a year. And you'll read in Leviticus 16 that the incense altar is pumping out so much incense and smoke that the priest doesn't even look at the mercy seat. One guy, once a year, no look. 
Go in, do your job, and get out. And then it goes on to say, once a year, and not without taking blood. The high priest would have gone in there outside of that one time with no blood. He would have been struck dead immediately by the Lord. Not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. Everything about the tabernacle screams separation. God is with us. But the moment that you revel in that, as an Israelite, the moment that you delight in that and rejoice in that, the moment you're also uh, led to say, but God is distant. He's near, but he's distant. He's close, but he's separated from us, even the priests. So when we come to the New Testament and we read in Matthew 27, verse 51, these words, we are utterly amazed. And behold, this is Jesus, and as he's on the cross, behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This is a full tear. It's not a partial tear. Jesus didn't poke a hole in it. He didn't tear out a patch so that you could look through if you got really close. He ripped it apart from top to bottom. He took away the separation. And at that point, there's a temple standing, but it is built on this model. And the veil of the temple is torn from top to bottom. The good news is found only in Jesus Christ. There is no good news apart from him. Hebrews chapter 10 verses 19 to 25 gives us this glorious description of this reality. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, listen to this, we, we here this morning, though we were fussing on the way here, Though we said an unkind thing to our spouse this morning. Though we've been checking out during the tabernacle sermon. Maybe. But whatever it is, whatever it is that's going on in our hearts, even we, as broken and imperfect and sinful as we are, even we, the writer says, have confidence, not just can. It's not one of those things where we're just sort of creeping up to the, to the veil and sort of pulling it back, make sure nothing happens, pull it back a little further, put one foot in. It's not that. We have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Confidence. By the new and living way. That he opened. For us through the curtain. What's the curtain? That is through his flesh. That brings new meaning to the Lord's Supper. That uh, helps us to see the weightiness of what we do when we partake of the bread and we realize that it symbolizes the flesh of Christ. I go on to read, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, now here's the practical application. Uh, I, I don't need to add to this. This is what the writer of Hebrews says is the application of the veil being torn. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Not doubting, 
Not just living with no joy, not living with no confidence in what God has done and what he is doing and will do, but with full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. The veil has surely been torn. The blood has surely been shed. And we have surely in Christ been saved. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. There's a horizontal dimension here to the torn veil. Stirring up one another to good works in light of this confidence that we have through Jesus' blood. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. This brings church attendance to a new level, right? So maybe church attendance for you is something that, you know, you know, I mean, it's important, but not, I mean, you know, it's like number three on the list. Maybe this elevates that for you. The church attendance passage, uh, I've been hearing this since I was a kid. This is the, well, one of the great church attendance passages right here that you hear when people are saying we need to go to church. We need to be with God's people. This is, this is one of the most significant. And I want you to see that it flows out of the torn veil. It flows out of Christ's atoning work. And what it tells us is that because of Golgotha, Because of the cross, because the veil is torn, because we have confidence to enter into the holy places, we better be with God's people, stirring one another up to good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. There is no more veil, but there is this earthly existence with these mortal bodies. One day... That veil, as it were, will also be torn. And we will forever be with the Lord. God's presence, God's holiness, God's praises fully realized when we are with the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we bow before you. You are holy. You are majestic. Lord God, we... We don't come anywhere close to truly recognizing your royalty and your holiness. Father, to think that we are the temples of the living God, that we have not only gone into the holy place, but that we through Christ have become the holy place is utterly astounding and convicting, Lord God. So we pray that all unholiness would be cast out that we would repent, turn away from our evil deeds, from the sin that so easily ensnares us, from the things in our hearts that no one knows about but us, Lord, the muck and the mire. Lord God, we come, though, with great confidence that you have already taken these sins away and put them on your Son. And so we come confidently, even though we are sinners, we come confidently. Because of the blood of Christ. And we thank you for that Lord. And we pray that we would. As the writer of Hebrews says. That we would have the full assurance of faith. That we would be confident. In Christ. Assured. And not doubting. Lord you'd protect us. We pray that you would protect us from the evil one. In this regard. Help us to do battle. With your means. We pray all this in Jesus.